Good morning. This morning we're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Today we'll cover verses 5 through 9, and then next week pick up with verse 10. We're still kind of in the same theme of <coughs> learning lessons from the wilderness generation under Moses, and the lessons we're learning here, for the most part, is what not to do. What not to do. So I look forward to learning more from God's Word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can look into your Word. May our hearts be tender as we listen to you, realizing these things are shared with us for our benefit, that we might avoid uh, things that would destroy us, harm us, confuse us, and keep our minds clear. And may we live according to what you've taught by your grace. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 10, and I'll start with verse 5 from the ESV. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So in the case of the Israelites, they had many great and glorious, miraculous experiences. As I talked about a couple of weeks ago, we were in this section. They were under the cloud, which is God's presence leading them. They were through, they went through the sea. They had spiritual food, which we explained was miraculously provided manna. And they had water from the rock, which is commemorated in many places in the Old Testament. And we cited some of them. Deuteronomy 32 is a good place to look, where you see um, the significance of the rock. The rock was Christ. And so their needs were provided. They were delivered from the Egyptians. They saw many miracles. They saw daily miracles. But yet they grumbled and so forth. So we'll be looking at that. So, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Now, in the case of the Corinthian church, Paul is making a direct application. He called these the generation that came out of Egypt our fathers. So there's certain corporate solidarity. Certainly there's a difference between the church and Israel. But there's corporate solidarity in the sense of people who have experienced God's salvation, in our case, through Christ, who have been taken care of by the Lord and given mighty and glorious promises. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, and by extension us, that we should not become complacent and we should not presume on the Lord or grumble and so forth, as we'll see, because we've had experiences and because God has been good to us, we should honor him and trust him. And so that's where the warning comes in. In the case of the Corinthians, the immediate context is Paul's discussion of exercising self-control. Paul himself said in chapter 9 that he exercised self-control, lest after he preached to others, he himself would be disqualified. Now, the Greek word here for overthrown is found in Numbers 14, 16. 
There are many references to different passages in the Old Testament that recount the things that happened in the wilderness and the rebellion that happened. I was mentioning to a couple people earlier that as I've studied this and looked up cross-references for the last few weeks, it's amazing how many there are. And if we think about it, I believe objectively, it has to show, in my mind, the inspiration of Scripture. Because if you have corporate solidarity, Israel, the people that received the promises of whom Yahweh had taken care of and brought them out of Egypt, keeping his promise to the patriarchs, and you failed miserably, why would you keep reminding yourself of your own failures? Or why would you have songs that sing about how we failed? I, many years ago, I pointed out most national, national anthems celebrate the greatness of whatever nation has the anthem. They have anthems that say how sinful we are. God was so good and we rebelled. And so this shows up in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, in Genesis, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in the Psalms, in the major prophets, in the minor prophets, and then in the New Testament, in John 6, in the book of Hebrews, in 1 Corinthians 10, forevermore we remember the failures. Why? Because God inspired the scriptures for our good that we would learn what we need to learn, that we would realize that we're in the same danger. The scriptures aren't here to... Uh, make us look better than we are, but to remind us of how we need to learn. And so the uh, failures are recounted as well as the victories. The word, most of them were not pleased, is the word eudokio, well pleased. With most of them, God was not well pleased. That was mentioned, that same Greek word, in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, For it says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased, there's our word, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So those for whom it was said God was well pleased to save us need to make sure that we don't end up in the same category of those who rebelled against Yahweh despite his miraculous provision. Every Christian has experienced miraculous provision, forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, a relationship with God and one another. Now, Moses interceded for them, and we can read about that in Numbers fourteen fifteen, and then Verse 16, I reference here on the slide. Let me read that. Numbers 14, 15, and 16. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord, that word there is Yahweh, could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. So Moses is interceding to Yahweh on the grounds of 
the, the fact that he had brought these people out and made these promises and to honor his own name to save, to bring honor to his own name, preserve a remnant. Don't kill them all as one man. And it, so Moses interceded on that basis and uh, for the sake of the honor of his name. And as you read on, and you can jot this down, there's not going to be near enough time to cover all the references here. But if you have your notes, you can just jot down Numbers 14, 13, and 19. And there you'll find out what actually happens is that only Joshua and Caleb go into the promised land. And those 20 years and younger, the older ones who saw the miracles, saw the first Passover, saw the Red Sea split and the overthrow of the Egyptian army and so on, but yet grumbled, they're not going in. And it says they're actually strewn or slaughtered in the wilderness. It's very sobering, but it's what it says. Paul's referring to this, and he expects the Corinthian church to know this because they need the warning as well. Here's a statement I wrote on my notes. They turned to idols, and their bodies were strewn in the desert. Of those who were alive during the Exodus from Egypt, only Joshua and Cable, excuse me, Joshua and Caleb entered the promised land. So this is recounted in Psalm ninety-five, Hebrews four, many other places. So we can't take this lightly. And I think of the horrible, dangerous state of what's called church in much of the world today. Some of the things said and done in the name of the Lord, which aren't that different from what's going on here. Praying to other gods by bringing Eastern religion into churches and calling it Christian. Practicing occult things as the pagans do. Teaching things that aren't from God and living ways that are not honoring to God. This warning is for every one of us. None of us is too good or too strong to not need any warning. We do need to be warned. Let's go to verse 6. It says, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Here I'm using the New American Standard. I wanted the word crave because I think it's a good translation. The word epithumeo as a verb means to lust. It's the word in the Greek for lust. So that we should not lust after or crave, good translation, evil things. And so Paul is putting his finger on the key issue. And it's one that was significant to him because he mentions it in Romans chapter 7. And that is the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. The 10th commandment in the Greek translation of the Old Testament usually cited in the New is epithumeo, to lust. 
So the word for examples is interesting as well as the word tupas, which means type. There's a lot of theological discussion about what's a type and what's not a type. But at this point, rather than going into the technicalities of that discussion, I chose this translation, and a lot of the scholars think it's the best way to say it, example. It's telling us two things at least, more than that, actually. These things happened. Do you see that? These things happened. The Bible is recounting objective, sober truth, history, real history, which some centuries ago used to be mocked by the liberals. It's unbelievable. Couldn't have happened. God doesn't do miracles. The rationalists. And then the uh, neo-Orthodox, well, we'll take a blind leap of faith because we can't expect anything objective to teach us. We'll just choose certain things based on a blind leap. But that's not what the Bible says. It says these things happened. And now that they're able to do the research, archaeology in the Middle East because of a little more stability. They're finding again and again and again, this is real. This is what happened. These things did happen in the places it says they happened. So it's cold, sober history. And the examples are still valid. The forms may change, but probably less than you think. We'll see that as we go along. But the dangers are real. The dangers are right there at the door of the Christian, enticing us with the lies of Satan, foisted upon Jesus himself in the wilderness, but he resisted every temptation. Jesus succeeded where they failed, but they're still aimed at us. Why should you suffer because you're a Christian when you could be having a Christianized version of whatever the pagans do. Why should you resist? And we need to not listen to the lies of the devil. Those who died due to their lust serve as examples that we would not do the same. And God is not mocked. Dr. Gardner makes a great point, I believe, us, he says, is Paul and all Christians upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Verse 11, we'll get to that next week. The problem, says Gardner, is sin. Paul's use of the first person plural is a reminder that he was also always able to admit that he too was a sinner who had evil desires. And then he cites the Greek of this verse. Dr. Gardner does. The problem, he says, the problem of the wilderness generation was that they desired epithumeo, evil things. Now, that made me think of Romans 7, where Paul talks about, I would have not known coveting had the Bible said, thou shalt not covet, to quote the King James. And there's no one so pious or holy, that they're above even being tempted. The desires are common to humans. We'll see that next week's sermon. 
Paul states that. The desires are there. They don't go away until we have a resurrected body. But we can learn self-control is really what's being go- going on here in the context. So let me, I'm agreeing with Dr. Gardner about Paul includes himself, us. Let us. He's part of the group. Let me make a statement I have in my notes about that. The difference between Paul and the Corinthians is that Paul saw dining in the pagan temples with the pagans as evil and thus exercise self-control, 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. To keep his eyes on the eschatological prize and off of the pleasures of paganism. The Corinthian critics of Paul saw the idol as nothing, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, and refused to act decisively to deal with immorality in their midst, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. And and, uh, the mention of God's previous acts of judgment, our fathers, serves as an example to warn them that they will also put themselves under judgment. That's my statement based on studying these texts in the context of what's going on in Corinth. Now, let me just cite the 10th commandment, Exodus 20:17. Write this down. I'll read it. I'm reading from a translation in my logo software, which is called Lexham English Septuagint. It's translating the Greek Old Testament that's often cited in the New. Exodus 20:17. You shall not desire the wife of your neighbor. You shall not desire the house of your neighbor, nor his field, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox or his beast of burden, nor any of his beasts, nor whatever belongs to your neighbor, unquote. That's the 10th commandment uh, translated from the Septuagint, which Paul cited, citing, desires epithumia. Paul said, I wouldn't have known coveting had the Lord, what it really was, had the Lord not said, thou shalt not covet. Because we can't say, well, I'm pure, I've done nothing wrong. No sin in me, I'm, I'm, I've arrived. Once you take the 10th commandment, that pulls the rug out from under everyone. And it keeps us sober-minded in regard to the Lord's Promises and our need for him. Let's go to verse 7. We're continuing in this series of uh, exhortation based on what had happened to the wilderness generation. 1 Corinthians 10, 7 from the ESV. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, quote, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, unquote. Now, as we've already seen, idolatry was prominent in Corinth at the time Paul wrote. And in fact, many of the celebration in the pagan religions were very similar to what happened at the, in the presence of the golden calf that we're talking about here. And... Uh, I have some great scholarly sources on this, and I spent a lot of time reading them. 
but they pointed this out. The Israelites engaged in eating, drinking, revelry, and cultic dancing before the idol. That is the golden calf. The very sort of things that happened in Corinth. There were some uh, very uh, explicit materialists found in archaeology from ancient Corinth just to give it ideas of what's going on in these temples. A lot of sailors came by, had been at sea. A lot of the people, a lot of the food in Corinth came from the burnt offerings that were offered to, to demons. We'll, we'll learn that later. And so this is a warning. It's a real warning. In the Corinth, some were saying, this is where my trade comes from. This is where my business uh, clients go. And if I want to do business and be successful here in Corinth, I've got to go to these temples and get involved with what's going on. And so the, Paul's disagreeing with that. No, you don't. Because you're underestimating the danger and are facing the possibility of a serious lack of self-control that could have disastrous consequences. So uh, let me read Exodus 32, 6 through 8, so we get the context of the people sat down to eat and drink. Uh, Exodus 32, 6 through 8. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's our the citation. Verse 7, Exodus 32. And the Lord, as Yahweh, said to Moses, go down. He was up receiving the law. Go down. For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf. They have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, quoting them, this is Yahweh telling Moses what was going on down there, okay, quoting them this way. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, they didn't actually believe the golden calf uh, brought them out of Egypt. They knew how they got out. They saw it or they witnessed it. But this is the rebellion. This is equating the creator of the universe, Yahweh, with the pagans, the pagan deities. The pagan deities have whole different ways. The worship of the pagan deities, very sensual, very wicked in many cases. I spoke to you earlier about the problem in Corinth of temple prostitution and the fact that some, even in the Corinthian church, were claiming the liberty to go to the temple prostitutes because it really doesn't mean anything. It, it doesn't mean anything. It's just kind of what folks do here in Corinth, to which Paul rebuked them vociferously in writing. Let me cite Kiapan Rosner, uh, two, two commentators and scholars, 
Quote, they were participating in idolatrous behavior, whether they conceived of it that way themselves. This may be an important warning, they say, to modern readers who cannot imagine how ancient peoples ever practiced idolatry. Modern people do not tend to give idols any more credence than some of the Corinthians did. That does not exempt them or us from the dangers of behaving in idolatrous ways. Now, this is just driven home when you see uh, some of the things that we've had to write about. I wrote an article on a neogram, for example. It clearly comes directly from paganism, a neogram. But yet, adopted right into massive churches, selling all kinds of millions of books, so that rather than praying to the Lord in a biblical manner and worshiping in a biblical manner and understanding ourselves according to the revelation of scripture, you have the pagan version and you can call it Christian and feel better about it. Paul's dealing with that very uh, strongly here in Corinth. Now there's another warning that I I think we need to take seriously. This issue of just letting go, letting go of all restraints. In American culture, and I'm sure elsewhere in the world, um, there are different practices that people have come up with that are so destructive. For example, the bachelor party. Doesn't have to be bad. But yet, in the culture, they say, hey, you're going to get married now. Just throw caution to the wind. Do every evil thing you want to. Then you won't, because uh, you won't be able to after you get married. No, you're practicing how not to have a marriage that lasts. You're practicing what you don't want to have happen. Same with uh, these initiations that they have into different societies and colleges or whatever, and name what you will. There are just ways that humans devise to become like the Israelites and throw caution to the wind and throw away self-control and let it all happen. But dear ones, the damage is done. And getting back out of it isn't always that easy, even when you want to. So Paul is warning Christians in Corinth that what's happening in the pagan cults right there in Corinth, by the way, confirmed in archaeology, is only going to harm them. Even if you do mental gymnastics to make it okay, yeah, so why shouldn't I? That's the only way I can do business. You're only putting yourself in a position that these people did, and they fell in the wilderness. Let's go to verse 8. On the same note, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. I want to quickly address something, because I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. In theology, there's a big deal about the missing thousand. Numbers say 24,000. Paul said 23,000. 
So you can read paragraphs about that. Um, here's what I'm going to do. Punt. I can't tell you why there's a thousand less in Paul's uh, narration of this and there's in numbers. It doesn't matter to me. It, you might think, well, if there's only 23,000, maybe it won't get to me. Bad idea. The warning stands however many thousand there were. It was really bad. Okay. And so this here, immorality, is a verb, porneo, porneo, and it's used to describe fornication in the context of polytheistic cults. The word comes up again. It's not very common. It's common as a noun, but not a verb. But it comes up in Revelation 17, 2, where the, the, this sort of thing happens in the context of the entire Babylon, which goes on into every wicked thing the world ever desired during the tribulation period, Revelation 17, 2. Paul is referencing the incident in Numbers 25, 1 through 9, which links pagan religion and immorality. And yes, that goes on. It has throughout the ages. It has throughout religions all around the world where immorality is turned into an act of worship. And it happens in the East. It happens in cults. And it happens, sadly, maybe not so boldly, but it does happen in churches. So this we need to be warned. We need to take seriously. So he's referencing the incident in Numbers 25, 1 through 9. And uh, there, this, by the way, I know I'm giving you a lot of material, but the theme is one. Remember concepts? Well, the concept is one. Don't rebel against God and go into immorality and rebellion. The details are really very many. And I think quite interesting, as a matter of fact. But here in Numbers 25, what happened was the pagans had hired Balaam to curse Israel. And he kept trying, but the Spirit of God came upon him and he blessed Israel. Take him, try it over here. Blessed him again. Bless Israel again. Try it over here. Bless Israel again. So then we find out that... Balaam, who's mentioned in Jude and in Revelation and so forth, came up with a brilliant, I quote air quotes here, idea. God blesses Israel. You can't curse them. But here's what you do. You offer the pagan women to them and you'll entice them and they'll curse themselves. They'll put themselves under Yahweh's curse. Here's what you do. And that's exactly what happened. Okay? That's what, just jot down Numbers 25, 1 through 9. So you'll have to read that because if we covered that, I wouldn't have time for this whole sermon. And so they have this Baal of Peor, the daughters of Moab, and uh, they invited the people, sacrifices of their gods, their version of worship involved immorality and so that's what they were doing and they came under a curse and the fire of Yahweh was starting on the outside and people were being burnt, burnt and were dying uh, 
But there was a man, I'm just telling you this story. There was a man by the name of Phinehas who was zealous for the Lord. And he literally thrust a spear through two of the fornicators right there. And then the fire stopped coming. When I was a freshman at Bible college, I had a great teacher who said that uh, some have called this Phinehas theology. If you want to save uh, the judgment, you have to kill the fornicators. And so that was uh, called Phinehas theology. But the point is to realize that compromising with the pagans cannot be allowed. We must all exercise self-control, as Paul did, 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27, and keep our eye on the eschatological prize, believe the promises of God, know that we need God to save us because we're no different than anyone else but by God's grace, and that God will preserve us. The warning is designed to keep us from falling into this. Now, what, why am I bringing up uh, Balaam? Jot down Numbers 31.16. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act, act treacherously against the Lord, it's Yahweh here, in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Numbers 31.16. So after you get done reading the incident 25, go look at 31.16, and you'll find out Balaam's role. And then when you see Balaam in Jude and in uh, Revelation 2, I think in one other place in New Testament, you'll find out what Balaam did. There's always going to be someone who makes it seem like a reasonable thing to so rebel against God, but in fact is not. Now, I want to cite Thistleton here. I know this a lot, but still one concept. Okay, still just one concept, just a lot of details. Thistleton, who is a scholar whose work on the Greek New Testament has been very helpful to me in this part of Corinthians, talked about what was going on in Corinth, where they, the people were that Paul wrote to. Thistleton, quote, the second fundamental context is that of the influence of the cults of Aphrodite, Dionysus, Bacchus, Apollo, Isis, and Serapis, and Poseidon at Corinth. Archaeological evidence not only establishes, but brings to life the reality and impact of these cults Many of many with implications for sexual license in for Corinth in its civic, cultural, and everyday life. And so here we have ancient Corinth with their religious temples and their worship and their deities and their religion acting like those totally cut loose from being grounded in anything moral or right, and the Corinthians being seduced into participating. And so therefore, this isn't just made up. 
This isn't just, well, who would do that or why could it be like that? The archaeology says this is exactly how it was in Corinth. And Paul's already gotten letters back and forth from the Corinthians claiming some rights to do these things. And he is saying no. And here's one reason why not. You will not get a better outcome than our fathers did when they participated. That's what that said. Verse 9. One more point here. Uh, there's actually more, but I'll get to that next week. 1 Corinthians 10, 9. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Now, here's another incident from the wilderness. Notice it says, do not put Christ to the test. In the Old Testament text, it said Yahweh was put to the test. It's one of the reasons Eric and I have said that Christ is Yahweh. Yahweh is Christ. It's the same deity, God, the triune God of the Bible, but in this case, Yahweh in particular, who appeared to Moses and who led them out of Egypt, being put to the test, and so the Corinthians are in severe danger, and some are already practicing putting Christ to the test. Then I have that on my notes here. To put Yahweh to the test is to put Christ to the test. Exodus 17.2, Numbers 21, 5, and 6. I'll cover the second one in an application. But it says in Exodus 17.2, Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put... Why do you test the Lord? Test the Lord. And it says, let me just cite another incident, or excuse, excuse me, a verse that recounts the incident. Psalm seventy-eight, eighteen. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. If God doesn't give me what I want now, I'll go worship some other God. I've heard people say that. In the 70s, and we did, the group I was with did a lot of counseling, and I talked to a lot of very uh, troubled folks, and they literally would say that. All right, I tried being Christian. That's not working out. It's not doing anything for me. I'll go try something else. So it's very pertinent to warn. And uh, this is also mentioned let me talk, uh, excuse me, let me quote Exodus 17, 7. And they called the name of the place Massa and Mirabah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord, that is Yahweh, by saying, is the Lord among us or not? How can you say, is the Lord among us or not, when they were part of the Passover? They saw the miracles. The manna was a miracle. Water from a rock was a miracle. The pillar of cloud, Yahweh leading them, fire by night, cloud by day. The sea parted. They recounted these things. They sang about them. And can you then say, is God among us? And I must say, at the same time I'm working on this sermon, I'm getting emails 
from people saying, we've got to do signs or wonders, signs and wonders. We need to do them now, and they need to be obvious. Then people will get saved. Really? Really? Well, it's interesting. The people that saw real ones reacted this way. What makes you think it's the answer now? As if we could go do signs and wonders at will because we want it so bad. So that's, don't believe that. Don't believe the signs and wonders claimants because they have to do other things because it's not really happening. And it won't solve the problem anyhow. What does Paul tell them here to keep them? He didn't say, well, we need more signs and wonders. He said, we need more fear of God. We need to not put God to the test. We need to learn from this so that we might exercise self-control. So what does it mean to put God to the test? Well, as you probably know, in Matthew 4, 6, and 7, uh, Satan uh, tempted the Son of God, Jesus, who was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He said, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Matthew 4, 6. Matthew 4, 7. Jesus said to them, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Citing Deuteronomy 6, 16. Here is a way to not fall into sin. Believing and citing pertinent scripture. Our Lord himself, the sinless one, did that. And when the thought comes, the temptation comes, think about what applies. Objective application of Scripture helps us. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet. I need to get more stuff, and the way I get it is by hook or by crook. No, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's land. They tested God by, rather than believing his promises based on his mighty deeds, which he has accomplished, and that we know are true, and believing that, and knowing that God cannot lie, and that God keeps his promises, and that God will keep us, thinking, I'm going to be bitter if I don't get what I want, and quit trusting God. Mirbah, bitter, bitter, I think that's the word bitter. Speaks of the Israelites testing God. So, dear ones, it says in Luke eleven sixteen, others to test him were demanding a sign from heaven. How come there's so little fear of God? How come the people who claim to be the most pious people in America and around the world, we are the pious ones, 24-hour prayer, we do the signs and wonders. We care about, we're sold out, we're going to do it all. And they're demanding signs. They don't show up. It would be worse if they did. Because then they'd think there's nothing to repent of. It doesn't work that way. Jesus said, one sign will be given to this wicked, perverted generation. That will be the sign of Noah, who was three days, three nights at the belly the great fish, and on the third, he came out, so will the Son of Man be in the earth three days and three nights. 
that he'll be raised. There's one sign that obligates every person on the face of the earth to have faith in Jesus Christ, and that is his death, burial, and resurrection, which he accomplished in history before witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. I see I don't have time for all these apps. Don't worry. We're going to be on the same topic next week. I'll just move them to the next PowerPoint. You see, I was uh, many, many hours at the waiting room of the hospital this last week while Diane had a sh- thank you for a prayer shoulder replacement. Boy, it's amazing how much work you can get done when you can't go anywhere. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, wow, did I get some studying done. Every believer in Christ faces the same dangers as the Israelites did. To crave what God delivered us from is to put ourselves in grave danger. I've mentioned these things. <clears throat> Here's the only escape. The only escape from death is to believe in the Lord and trust his provision. What do you do when the manna is there, as it was for them? Thank you, Lord, for your provision of food out here in the wilderness where anyone else would die. That's what you do. You're you're grateful. Lord, you provided for me, or else I would die. So that's trusting in the Lord and honoring him. Let me cover Jude, who actually applies some of the same things. And I have just parts of the verses, but it says here, Beloved, though I was... I'm going to read to you verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all, hopox means once and never again. Once we're all delivered to the saints. We don't have to look for a new Moses or a new set of apostles and prophets. We need to be, be mindful of the faith once we're all handed down. Then verse 4. I couldn't get it all on the slide, but uh, here's what I did get. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, let me stop there, once for all, hotbox again, the faith was once for all, handed down the saints, you know all things once for all. Strong argument for the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. We know what we need now. We don't need some other process. That the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So let me make a statement about that. I think the application here is obvious to the text we're covering in 1 Corinthians 10. Jude references the apostasy and judgment Paul referenced in 1 Corinthians 10. And we discussed here today. We are to learn from what has happened in God's dealings with his people in biblical history. God has not changed. 
keeping these facts before us is a means of preserving us from sin and subsequent judgment. The very looking at these things and uh, preaching about them and talking about them and uh, bringing them into our hearts and minds and seeing how they apply, this is a means, the means that's most important, the, the very word of God and the fellowship we have around it to keep us, to really drive home that we not follow the example of the wilderness rebels. So God uses the warnings to keep us from apostasy. And I know a lot of the emails I get over the years are, is it possible? We want to talk about possibilities and so on, rather than read the text and learn the lesson. Is it possible that I could be apostate? That's the question I get. I say, I strongly urge you not to commit apostasy. Well, what about, but it's, it, they want to talk about possibilities and try to analyze it that way. These are not here to create theoretical ideas, but to warn us what not to do. And the warning is saying, if you go do that and say, goodbye to God, I'm not going to serve him, I'm going to serve the world. Yes, that will happen to you. Well, maybe I already did it. Now God doesn't want me back. My advice, repent and believe the gospel. And don't live in a world of possibilities. Live in a world of reality and trust God now. He's not going to turn you away if you cry out to him for help. Let's go to... Uh, I'm going to save Numbers 11... Four through six for next week. You remember? Let's go to Numbers 21, 5 and 6. Do not test God. I'll put it in an app next week. Do not test God. Numbers 21, 5 and 6. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Question mark. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among them, among the people, and they bit the people so that they, many people of Israel died. They rejected and complained about God's provision. The word, by the way, serpents, there's different ones in the Old Testament. This one, one of the scholars translated burners. These serpents were burners. What is a burner? Well, after it bites you, you have fiery inflammation on your body. They can swell up so bad that it kills you. So that's the burner snake. Not good, but that's what happens. What does it mean to test God? Simply to grumble, which we'll get to next week, against God's provision rather than rejoicing in it and praising him. There's a reason why we give thanks to God and we keep giving thanks to God to remind ourselves his gracious provision, who he is, what he did, why we need him. And Christians are not immune from the things that destroyed the people in ancient Israel in the wilderness. Lack of thankfulness. 
comparing ourselves to somebody else, thinking, well, the people I know that aren't serving God, they have a better off than I do. And he, I remember one time, some decades ago, one uh, person came in to talk about churches and said to me, uh, and she, she had been going to a really big church, they had a lot to offer, and she said, my church has every program but the space program. Within a week, somebody from the same church called and said to me, same one, my church isn't meeting my needs. Okay. Every program but the space program not meeting my needs. Now, I happen to know that some of my teachers from Bible college were at that church and they did have the gospel. I don't know what it's like now. But that's not how we look at things. Am I being taught the word of God? Are there Christians who love me and love the Lord to care for one another? Are we honoring God? And so on. There, there's things that are important. And if you go in, my knees, my knees, my knees, who's going to meet them, is a prescription for murmuring. And that's what the Israelites are doing. And we need to be thankful and thank God that he allows us to be part of his family. So it says in Numbers 21, 7 and 8, intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on. By the way, it doesn't mean the serpent was on fire. It was made out of bronze. The fiery serpent would be the type of serpent that causes inflammation when it bites you, okay? And set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. That's the answer. By the way, later in their history, they, made the, they, t- they kept it and brought it out and worshipped it. That didn't work. It got them in trouble. There we go. Last slide. John 3, 14 and 15. Jesus cited the issue of the fiery serpent and the bronze one right here in John 3, and that brings us to the gospel. John 3, 14 through 16, ESV. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Imagine that. The Lord Jesus himself cited the incident and the bronze serpent and told us that it signified him being lifted up on the cross, mentioned several times in John, so that we could have life. They looked at a bronze Serpent, and they lived. We look by faith to the incident of Jesus being lifted up, and we're trusting his finished work that we may be saved and have eternal life. Jesus Christ, the very creator, as I said earlier, John 1, 1 through 18, God the Son, who came into our world, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, did many mighty deeds to demonstrate who he is, 
who made many promises and predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and did miracles of provision. In John 6, they grumbled at those. But yet he is the Lord, and he's the one who comes to bring life. He's the only begotten, the unique one, the only one of his kind. He didn't become God. He is God from all eternity. And Jesus, the Son, the Son of Man, reference to Daniel 7, prophecy about him and his dominion, is telling us that we need to believe in him in order to not perish like those who are perishing under the curse of the serpents. He's coming again. He ascended to heaven. He's coming again to bring judgment to his enemies, salvation to those who are looking for him. Today, the Lord is calling each one of us to look to him. We're no better than those Israelites that were grumbling. We need to look to Jesus with thanks and gratitude and believe in him. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ today, believe upon him, trust in him, and you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. That's the promise of God. The Lord Jesus is the one who brings salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord that these things happen, that we could learn. And every one of us needs to take to heart what you've told us. May we do so. May we flee from what would harm. And Lord, if there are any here today who do not know you, may today be the day they look to you and believe on you and find eternal life. Thank you for what you've done. And we give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.